every major historical doctrine has been denied by one woman who claimed to be the woman. Her name is a lady who founded a group called Christian Science that is neither Christian nor scientific. Her name was Mary Baker Eddy. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we have moved into chapter 12 today in a message entitled, The Woman and the Red Dragon. Today, we'll look at the importance Israel plays in the end times. This, despite efforts on the part of various, even well-meaning groups, to discount the pivotal role this tiny nation has in end-time prophecy. A pulpit committee was interviewing a young pastor to see if he might be a good fit for their church. And the head of the pulpit committee asked the young man a question. I know you're new. I know this would be your first church, but do you feel like you know the Bible pretty well? To which the young preacher said, well, yeah, I I do my best to know it. And the head of the pulpit committee said, well, what part of the Bible do you think you know the best? To which the young man said, well, I think I know the New Testament the best. And so they asked him, well, why don't you tell us about the story and give us a critique of the prodigal son? So the young preacher said, I'll be glad to. And he proceeded with these words. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and he fell upon stony ground and thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb and he hung there 40 days and 40 nights, after which he became very hungry. And the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on a wall. He said, throw her down, boys, throw her down, boys. And they said, how many times shall we throw her down? Till seven times seven? And he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they threw her down 490 times and she burst asunder in their midst And they picked up 12 baskets of the leftovers. And in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Well, the committee chairman interrupted. And he said, fellows, I think we need to call this guy to our church. He really knows his Bible. (laughs) Now, obviously, the story is fictional. It's as fictional as some of the interpretations are of Revelation chapter 12. Just recently, it made not just national news, but international news that the rapture would take place on April the 23rd. And the text of Scripture that they used was Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And they said that the moon is now appearing under the constellation Virgo, the sun clothing her, which must mean the rapture of the church. Well, this is April the 29th, if you didn't notice, and we are still here. And so everything is context. The Bible is often abused and misrepresented because it is taken out of its historical grammatical context. So let me dust off your minds for a moment and set the broad context and then the immediate context. Most of you know, as this slide illustrates, that there are three major divisions to the Revelation. Jesus commands John to write the things which you have seen. That's the past. 
He has a vision of the glorified Christ and he writes it down in chapter 1. Write the things which are, that's the present, that's chapters 2 and 3, as he records seven actual churches that are in existence in his day. And then the things that must take place after these things, that's the future. So when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse, it begins with the words, after these things. You can't miss it. And a door is opened in heaven, which we saw was a picture of the rapture of the church. And it was not by accident that there were 24 elders, a representative number in Scripture. These 24 elders represented the body of Christ that had been taken up into heaven. And so the seven churches are never mentioned again. No church is mentioned until Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 at the second coming. So we are in the futuristic section of the Revelation. In chapter 4, we see a picture of the Father at the throne. In chapter 5, we see the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father, who's handed a scroll, the title deed to the earth. And then in chapters 6 through 19, we see how God is going to reclaim the earth for His Son. We've already underscored that these three sets of seven judgments do not happen at the same time, but they happen consecutively. The first are the seal judgments, followed by the trumpet judgments, followed by the bowl judgments. Here's a chart reminding you of the seven-sealed scroll. If you remember, the first four seals represented the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We had a sermon on each of these seals. Then the fifth seal represented the martyred saints, those who are one to Christ during the great tribulation, but they are beheaded for their faith because they refuse to follow the Antichrist. The sixth seal we saw represented some cosmic changes in the universe. The first time that happens, and will happen several times, during this seven-year period. And then when you come to chapter 7, there's a pause in the action. Now understand, there is no pause in terms of the events taking place. The pause that we see between the uh, 6th and 7th trumpet is simply a pause to help us, I suppose, to catch our breath, but also to help us to see what God is doing as these judgments unfold. And so in the seventh chapter, we studied the 144,000 Jews who are saved from the 12 tribes of Israel who preach the gospel to the whole world. And then the seventh seal is open. Now, we've seen already that the seal judgments can be seen only one at a time. But when the seventh seal is broken, you can see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet is contained seven bowls. So there's an order to this madness, and it's not mad at all because God has given this book structure. Six trumpets, a pause of time to help us to see what was going on during these six, I mean, six seals. The seventh seal is open, and the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, as this diagram shows, there is once again a pause in the action. And in the 10th through the 14th chapter, God introduces us to seven very important people, seven personages that are playing a leadership role during the time of the tribulation period. Now, when the seventh seal is open, because you can see the seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet you can see the seven bowls of judgment, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. 
I mean, it just, I suppose, literally takes their breath away. There's dead silence in heaven. Can you imagine that? Heaven this morning is filled with praise and adoration. But there'll be 30 minutes of silence in heaven because of what God is about to do. So here between the sixth and seventh judgment, in the, we studied those, uh, those first six trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. So when you come to chapter 10, again, he's showing us what is happening. And so in chapter 10, we saw the angel in his little book. In chapter 11, we saw the two witnesses that are used by God. The Bible speaks of the return of Elijah during the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so virtually all are in agreement that one of these two witnesses is Elijah. And I think the second is Moses. But I wouldn't fight over it or break fellowship over it. But what's interesting is that in 1115, in the middle of this pause, so that you can see that the action is simultaneous, God says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you think, well, this is the second coming, but it's not. In fact, the bold judgments haven't even happened. And so you do not see, while the seventh trumpet is blown and this announcement is made, you do not see the action of the seventh trumpet that contains the seven bowls until you come to chapter 16. Chapter 15, introductory to the 16th chapter, setting us up for the trumpet judgments. So here's a new diagram for you that you've not seen yet. The seven bowls of wrath. And again, in the seventh trumpet are seven bowls. And between the sixth and the seventh bowl, just a few verses in this case, but nonetheless a pause in the action so you can see what God is doing. Now, it's clear as you read these three sets of seven judgments that they intensify with time. For instance, in the fourth seal, we saw one-fourth of the world affected. In the third trumpet, we saw one-third of the world affected. So the intensity in terms of the effect of the judgment is growing. And when the bold judgments happen... Look out, the seal judgments encompass both believers and unbelievers. The, the trumpet judgments do the same, but the bold judgments will only affect the ungodly lost people of this world. So to give you the big picture in this next diagram, if you'll bring it up for me, again, the rapture of the church is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. The Bible has always speaks of the return of Christ for his people as imminent. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the church was established on the day of Pentecost for Jesus to come and get you. It could happen this afternoon. And so you have to live with that readiness that it might be a 100 years from now or it might be this afternoon. The church has always lived with that perspective. However, the second coming is a very planned, predicted program, and there are many events that must take place. After the rapture, shortly after, there's a peace treaty that is signed by the Antichrist. And you can see this seven-year period is divided into two halves, by Jesus, by the prophet Daniel, by the apostle Paul, and by the apostle John, three and a half years each. Israel's protected in the first half. Israel is persecuted in the second half. And so uh, this is a very important time in human history. And while this passage of Scripture will be so relevant to people who are living during this time, studying the pages of Scripture to see what is going to happen next, all Scripture is given by inspiration. God gave us this set of Scripture called the Revelation of Jesus Christ because there's application in here for us today.
Now, as we step into this pause, this uh, parenthesis of sorts, again in chapters 12 and 13, there are seven key personages that we are introduced to. And amongst those seven, there's an unholy trinity where Satan mimics the role of God the Father, the Antichrist mimics the role of God the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist, as we will see, mimics the role of God the Holy Spirit. An evil trinity of sorts, but in the end, of course, we will see that God will be victorious through His Son. Now, if you're a new Christian and you don't know it yet, let me inform you. Satan hates you and he wants to destroy you. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to wreck your family. He wants to wreck your testimony. And if you'll allow him, he'll do precisely that. And so there's much we can learn about this evil one, here termed the red dragon. So again, the focus is the woman and the red dragon, and God reveals three truths about this woman in these few short verses of Scripture. First, we want to consider the identity of the woman, the identity of the woman. We're told here in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. I need to tell you right off that the identity of the woman has been a source of great debate for centuries, largely by cults, just like the group that we saw in this past week who identified the woman in a false way in the realm of astrology and therefore discerned in their thinking that the, that the rapture was going to happen. It's kind of like the 144,000 that we studied, and we saw some of the wacko interpretations that people have held during the age of the church. Every major historical doctrine has been denied by one woman who claimed to be the woman. Her name is a lady who founded a group called Christian Science that is neither Christian nor scientific. Her name was Mary Baker Eddy. She believed that she was the woman and the child that she gave birth to was the Christian Science religion. And of course, she taught, central to her teaching, that mind could overcome matter, that mind could overcome disease, that if you thought right, you could think your way out of any sickness, even death. Well, she died in 1910. Now, her mansion was right across the street from a dormitory that I lived in for two years when I was at Boston College. And I went over there on occasion just to see, you know, who would show up. And sometimes there would be opportunity for me, even as a new Christian, to give some evangelistic witness. Of course, when she died, it was very difficult for her followers to admit. So they put her in a carriage and propped her up and wheeled her up and down Beacon Street there for a few weeks. And then her body began to decay. And so they decided to bury her. And they buried her with one of the earlier telephones in her coffin because they believed that somehow she would come back and she'd be able to radio them, I guess. Well, clearly she is not the woman. Now, our Roman Catholic friends say that Mary, the Queen of Heaven, is the woman. But that cannot possibly be true for a number of reasons. Mary is dead. She's in a grave. And we're going to see that the woman that is described in these verses is very active in the future. Mary's been dead for a few thousand years. Now, we have people like Enoch and Elijah that were translated into heaven. 
But Mary has not been translated, though that is a central doctrine in Roman Catholicism. In November the 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII said that Mary was ascended into heaven. It's one of the seven feast days. It's a holy day of obligation that as a young child, it was one of the days outside of Sunday I had to attend church to be in good standing with the church. Mary's dead. Her body was not captured up into heaven, no matter what people may say. The woman is not Mary, and we'll see that's an impossible interpretation. But some evangelicals say the woman is the church. Again, the problem with that, when we come to verse 5, we just read it. She gave birth to a son, and so if the woman is the church, that would mean that the church gave birth to Jesus. The truth is, Jesus uh, gave birth to the church. But again, what do they do? They make the church existing in the Old Testament. So when you speak to Reformed theologians today, as they like to refer to themselves, whether it's a Francis Schaeffer or John Piper, and and again, I'm thankful for these men who had the gospel and the good that they did for the faith. But the church did not exist in the Old Testament. It is a unique entity distinct from Israel. Jesus said, I will build my church. You say, well, how can they come up with that? Well, there's a lot of things they use. One thing is language. As you know, uh, in the early church, most Jews did not read the Hebrew Scriptures, but they read the Septuagint, the Greek translation. It's translated, uh, it's abbreviated in your Bible, often in the margin, LXX, because it was written supposedly by 70 men in 70 days. That's neither here nor there, but that's what most Jews read. And in the Septuagint, you will see the word for church, ecclesia. And they say, see, the church is there in the Old Testament. The Greek translators of the Old Testament refer to the assembly of people as the church. Well, to be consistent, the word church is also used in the New Testament of a mob of people that want to kill the Apostle Paul. It just meant an assembly of people. They may be called out for holiness, as we are, but they also may be called out even for evil. But again, if you want to say that God is done with Israel, that the church is the new Israel, then you have to somewhat allegorize the Word of God and come up with a different interpretation. Now, why do we not interpret the Scripture that way? Because God gave us a method for interpreting. You say, well, how do you know your method is right, Pastor? I'll tell you why. Because God contained within the Scripture how to interpret the Scripture. So what's interesting is our Reformed brothers take a plain, historical, grammatic interpretation of most of the Bible, but when they come to the prophetic section especially those prophecies that deal with the second coming. They're not consistent. They don't do this with the first coming. They say Bethlehem is Bethlehem. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, as the prophet Micah said. But when you come to the second coming, they allegorize the Scripture, and they do not interpret it in its plain historical sense. And yet, when you see, for instance, when we're studying the prophet Daniel, in Daniel 9, he was reading the prophet Jeremiah, who is his predecessor. And he's wondering, well, how long are we going to be here in Babylon? 
So as he pours over the prophet Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, Jeremiah says, 70 years. And Daniel thinks, ah, it's almost up. Daniel literally interpreted that prophecy. When you come into the New Testament and you read the apostles and the Lord Jesus, and you see them interfacing with Old Testament prophecies, how do they interpret them? In their literal, plain, historical, grammatical context. But this idea that the church is the new Israel, this is a history lesson, church history lesson. But look, very often we interpret Scripture through our own rose-colored glasses. And there's a lot we can learn from church history. And I know this is a difficult book. You've wanted me for years to preach it, so I'm preaching it, all right? But understand, Revelation 12 is critical to understanding the rest of the Revelation, And it has huge implications in your day-to-day personal life. But there was a fellow, a late church father, as we call him, called Origen, who lived during a time in human history that to preach that Jesus was a king who would have a literal kingdom on the earth would not go over well with a Roman emperor. It could mean your life. So he somewhat allegorized the scripture. There was a fellow who came after him. His name was Augustine of Hippo. Augustine uh, died in the year 430, and he too said that the church was the new Israel. He was a what we call today a staunch Calvinist. Now, obviously, Calvin comes centuries later. He doesn't come until 1509. But still, he's called Augustine the father of predestination. Why? Because of his view of Israel. So when Reformed theologians come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, if God is done with Israel, if there's no future or significance for the Jew, when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you can't read it in reference to the people of Israel in God's election of them in chapter 10, their rejection of him in chapter 9, their rejection of him in chapter 10, his future restoration of them in chapter 11. You have to read it in a different way. So Calvin came to Romans 9, and he says it's not dealing with God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, but God choosing you to go to heaven and you go to hell. Sorry, no inference implied there, all right? So it creates a dynamic that is unhealthy as you approach the Word of God. Now, let me just say parenthetically, because of this, the way some Christians, and God is their judge, I'm not, the way some Christians viewed Israel was not always in a healthy way. Let me read Augustine. Protestants love to quote Augustine, as do Catholics. They both claim, both groups claim him as their own. Augustine said this of the Jews. He believed that the Jews, he says, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. Then he writes in the treatise against the Jews that they, the Jews, must be allowed to survive but never to thrive. So there are proper punishments for their refusal to recognize the truth that the church claims. You go into Yad Vashem. Some of you will be there with me, Lord willing, in about 10 days. And the very first exhibit you see are these words written by Augustine. These hateful, heinous words about the Jewish people. No wonder Jewish people kind of just broad brush us all together. Oh, this is what Christians believe. So here's Augustine. He says, let them live so that they might suffer. 
And again, his theology is adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church to this day says, we are the new Israel. We are the people of God. There's no significance for the Jewish people. Well, you got men like Calvin and Luther who grow up in the Catholic Church. They're studying to be priests. One becomes a priest. One is in the process. And they think, look, we're looking at all this corruption with the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops. They can't be the people of God. Only those who've been transformed by a second birth who are born again. And so they redefine the church, but they keep the same doctrine. That the church, the body of born-again believers, not the institutionalized church, the body of born-again believers is the new Israel. And God is done with the Jewish people. So here's the words of John Calvin. He said, and I quote, The Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves they be oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Oh, that's hurtful. Martin Luther recorded these words in 1563. Listen. When then, what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemies. Let me give you some of my honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered and spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or a stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his sons and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. For they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a sizable or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry lies cursing in blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death not to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. You ought not, you cannot protect them unless in the eyes of God you want to share in all of their abomination. To sum up, Luther writes, Dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. And so Augustine adopted his theology from origin. Catholicism, Catholicism adopted their theology from Augustine. And Luther and Calvin from Romanism with a different spin on it. And the problem with all these men is they did not understand the role of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, in the salvation of the world. God made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. It is both sad and sickening the way God's people throughout the ages have treated the Jews and the nation Israel. Tomorrow, when we continue our study entitled The Woman and the Red Dragon, we'll see how wrong men like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, 
and even some modern-day religions have been towards God's chosen people. And we'll look at the part Israel will play during the tribulation. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order this message on CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV28. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Christ and then growing them in their love and knowledge of Him. Why not join us in this mission? To become a Search the Scriptures supporter, click the Give button at our website or on our app, or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Part 2 of The Woman and the Red Dragon. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.